good to be back with you all this morning. Thank you for having me back, and I'm grateful to be able to preach God's Word. It's a hard passage this morning that we'll be in, Isaiah chapter 58, if you'll turn with me there, Isaiah chapter 58. I've labored over this passage in my own life and the way it convicts me deeply. It comes toward the end of the book of Isaiah, a long prophecy. It has a lot of varied material. And in chapter 58, God tells Isaiah to cry out this message to the people. And we'll read the passage in its full or in whole it's uh, 14 verses long so it is a little lengthy but listen carefully to what to the word of the Lord cry aloud do not hold back lift up your voice like a trumpet declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sin yet They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. And oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down with his head like a reed? To spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, 
Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would use it to shape us as your people. In this local body, and as we go through our weeks interacting with each other, interacting with those outside of our congregation, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to worship you through the things that we do, to worship in a way that is acceptable to you. Pray that you would help us to apply this word to our hearts, plant it deep in us, and shape us by it. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. About 500 years ago, in Ghana, in the capital city, right on the coast, there was a a church. There was actually a chapel that had been built by European settlers. And European settlers would come and meet every week there in that chapel. And they would worship the Lord. They had a worship service actually very much like ours. They would sing songs, great hymns of the faith. They would hear the word of God preached. They would pray to the Lord. They would participate in the sacraments. They would take up an offering to advance the work of the gospel and to help those who were less fortunate. And sometimes there would be distractions that they would actually raise their voices and sing louder in order to, to overcome those distractions. And you see, they had built this chapel on top of a large room that was underneath. And if you had gone into that large room underneath on any given Sunday, you would have found wall-to-wall, packed in, African men and women who were going to be sent around the world and sold as slaves. And sometimes they would be able to hear the worship above them. weren't allowed to participate, but they might make a commotion and the European settlers would sing all the louder to do away with the distraction. Was the worship of these European settlers acceptable to God? That is a hard question and a sobering question. And Isaiah 58 helps us to navigate this question this morning, but I want to ask a more pointed question to us. Is our worship acceptable to God? Is your worship acceptable to God? And we'll find, as we move through Isaiah 58 this morning, that worship that is acceptable to God must involve justice and righteousness in the community. Because this is God's design for his community. For his church. We'll move through the passage, through the first seven verses in order. And I want to start in verse one. The Lord declares to Isaiah, Cry aloud, do not hold back. And if you were to turn back just a few pages, you would have found in Isaiah chapter 40 that the Lord said a very similar thing Cry aloud, a message of deliverance. Your warfare is ended, a message of hope to the people. And yet here, 18 chapters later, 
the Lord tells Isaiah to cry aloud with his whole throat. It's kind of the, if we translated it a bit more literally, with, with everything he has, cry aloud the opposite message. A message not of deliverance and hope, but a message of conviction. A message of the people's sin. And the language here is warfare language. He says, lift up your voice like a trumpet. This is how the Israelites would have gone into battle. It's almost like the Lord is declaring war on his people, in a sense here, through his prophet Isaiah, through these words. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. We better pay attention as God's people. I want you first to notice, as we consider this question, is our worship acceptable to God? That participation, mere participation, is not enough. Mere showing up is not enough. It's very clear in this prophecy, and we start in verse 2, it's an odd way to start a prophecy of judgment. The Lord talks about some positive things that they've done. Look at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They're showing up day after day. They're present. We know from, from the context of the whole passage that they're fasting. That's something God asks his people to do. It's a good thing. It's a good spiritual discipline. They're doing good things. They're participating. But evidently it's not enough because in the very next verse, verse 3, they ask the Lord, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? The Lord is not listening to them. The Lord is not accepting their mere participation. When my oldest two, they're just down here, I'm five-year-old and three-year-old now, when they were three and one, we taught my daughter that it was not safe for James to go play in the bathroom. So every time she saw the bathroom door open, she would run and go close it. And I remember one time, we were sitting in the living room, Bethany and I, my wife, and, uh, and the bathroom door was open, and James is crawling towards the door. And Ellie, my oldest, runs across the room to shut the door, and you can probably already see it coming. She slams it right as his fingers get into the doorway. She was trying to obey us and do the right thing. She was trying to protect her brother. But in the process, she forgot, and she kind of missed the point. She ended up hurting him. She did the exact opposite of what she intended to do. The Israelites here, are, they're showing up. They're doing a lot of the right things. But they're actually achieving the exact opposite of what this participation is supposed to result in. See, their participation is not just not enough but their participation actually is leading them further away. This is what we see in the next few verses. It's leading them in the opposite direction from where they should be going. Remember that fasting is something that's designed to, to orient us away from ourselves and toward God and other people. 
God gives us food as a good gift. God didn't have to make food taste good. He gives us not only sustenance, but enjoyment in our eating. And he says, when you fast, what it does is it's time to, to, to reorient ourselves to the giver. Not to just focus on the gift as an end in itself, but to go to the one who gives it to us. To take time in prayer and to seek his face. But we find in the next few verses that they're fasting and they're actually turned inward rather than outward. Look at verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. First of all, they're self-consumed. They're seeking pleasurable things for themselves. They're looking inward. They're not looking outward. Secondly, they oppress all their workers. This is integral in God's law. In Leviticus 19, you may remember the gleaning laws where uh, landowners were called not to reap all the way to the edges of their fields. They're called to leave something for the poor and the marginalized to come reap. And it's it's this amazing thing where God says, don't just reap everything, sort of maximize your profits in today's terms, and then give. He says, create intentionally or make intentionally non-efficient, inefficient business decisions and let others come in and work and participate. So they're actually drawn into the economic process. So, so, so workers are not to be oppressed. Workers are actually to be brought in and honored. And, and here in Isaiah 58, evidently the Israelites are oppressing their workers. So there's direct application to us here. We're business uh, uh, owners and employers, we, we need to treat our workers fairly, to pay our workers fairly. And sometimes that means maybe making inefficient business decisions so that those who are working for us aren't living in poverty while they're working. I work at a nonprofit in Memphis in workforce development, and, and in our city, it's very difficult because so many jobs, people are working and still living under the standard of living, under the what, what, what's recognized as the minimum amount that someone should make to live on. But this has application in many other areas of our lives because as parents, often we push our kids really, really hard to be something that we want them to be. Sometimes we need to consider, are we being oppressive in our expectations? Children, youth who are still in here, uh, if you're in school, are you standing up for those who are vulnerable in, in classes, those who are being bullied or teased? Are you standing by? God calls us to, to not oppress, but to actively help those who are vulnerable. Not only that, as Isaiah continues in verse 4, he says, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. There's not only economic oppression going on here, but there's physical oppression. Isaiah makes it clear that if there is abuse, ongoing abuse that I am carrying out in my household or harassment that I'm carrying out in my place of work or power that I'm holding inappropriately over other people, and then I come into God's house and worship, that God does not hear my worship. 
You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Verse 5, is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. And humble himself there just really means to fast. It's a synonym. So, So is it just to fast outwardly? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Is it just to do the right thing, to wear the right clothes, to, to, to create the right situation? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And the implied answer is an emphatic no. This is not acceptable. In verse 6, God begins to give the Israelites a little bit of an idea of what true fasting and true participation looks like. If, if mere participation is not enough, and if mere participation can actually cause us to go further away from the Lord, to go in the wrong direction, then what does true fasting look like? What, is, what does true participation look like? Well, verse 6 says, is not this the fast that I choose? The Lord graciously begins to give us what he wants, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. A true fast aims at freedom. A good friend of mine taught at a, for, for years at a uh, school for bivocational ministers. And he had an assignment where a gentleman who had been incarcerated wrote this in response to the question, what, what does the cross of Christ mean to you? He said, Jesus represents freedom in my mind. I've been in a setting where there was someone telling me when I could eat, sleep, wake up, and even use the bathroom. As far as the warden and every guard in the prison was concerned, I was merely a number in chains. I felt hopeless, but when Jesus came into my heart, I felt freedom I could not describe. I began to realize that Jesus is Lord and was able to forgive me of all my sins. He still loved me with an unconditional love. His love is all-powerful, and he can be everywhere at the same time even if you're in a dark, dirty, and lonesome jail cell. I know him as my deliverer, and I would dare say that this gentleman understands much more than I do the freedom that God brings through the gospel. And all of our lives should be aimed at that kind of freedom. The Lord says over and over again in the law, I'm the Lord who who brought you out of Egypt. And then he applies it to our lives in the community together. Create freedom, loose the bonds of wickedness in your community, in your church community, in the community that God is creating. This is his design. Not only freedom, but verse 7 shows us that, that God is leading us to, or true fasting leads us to radical generosity and hospitality. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. About two years ago, uh, a homeless lady showed up at our church and she clearly had, she had several bags. And I, I saw her on the way to go uh, pick up my kids from the nursery. I come back with the kids and my wife Bethany is talking to this lady and I was just like, oh no, she's going to invite her to stay with us. I was in my heart, just like, this is so inconvenient. This is, this is going to be, yeah, it creates these dangers in our house. We don't know her. 
And lo and behold, I walk up, and Bethany goes, hey, Carol's here from Chicago, and she's going to stay with us tonight. And immediately, I felt conviction, and as I was preparing this sermon, I felt that conviction all over again, how resistant I am to that. That's a very clear, direct application to invite the homeless poor into your home. It's right here. Most of the time, for us, it's not going to look like some stranger that I meet on the street that I'm going to invite to come stay with me. We do need to be discerning and wise as we do that and consider the safety of our families. That's really important. But it does mean that if I'm only inviting people into my home that make me comfortable, then there's probably an issue. I need to be working to invite those who have more needs, who, who make me a little bit uncomfortable maybe, to, to, to be inviting people into creating hospitality in this church body, to be figuring out ways to be radically generous to others, to share with others who don't have as much in a way that leads them to participation in the community. Now there's, you know, at this point we could ask the question, what hope do we have then? Because we're not going to do that perfectly. And we know that mere participation is not enough. And we know that participation can actually lead us in the opposite direction we're called to. So how can we have worship that's acceptable to God? How can our worship be acceptable to God? And there's, there's two dangers that, that we could have as we come to this passage as we try to make our worship acceptable to God. One would be that, that, and I think this is what we often struggle with, we don't go to passages like these. We kind of avoid them. And we tend to go to passages that are a little more comfortable. Another danger is that we could make this sort of uh, social justice that's in this passage here, right? Justice is important here. But we can make that the main thing in our lives. And basically what we end up doing is we put social justice or, or kind of that striving after this ideal in the place of fasting. We take a good thing. And we make that the central thing, the only thing, and we participate, but we aren't actually drawn closer to God. We end up just turning inward. Right? So justice is important. Fasting is important. But so easily, we can make those things it. Those things that actually turn me inward and lead me in the opposite direction that God calls us to. There is no participation in worship that will be acceptable to God unless we are participating in Christ. And this is the answer for the church. In other words, Christ is the only way that we can have worship that's acceptable to God. And I want you to see this in just a couple of ways. In the book of Luke, when Jesus shows up and and Luke's describing his ministry, the beginning of his public ministry, the first thing he does when he goes out in public, is he's baptized. Then he immediately goes out into the wilderness, and he spends 40 days fasting, being tempted, and never giving in to that temptation, resisting that temptation. Immediately after Jesus spends that time fasting in the wilderness, he comes back, and he goes directly to a synagogue. 
And he opens a scroll in the Old Testament, and guess where he opens? He opens the book of Isaiah, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 and Isaiah chapter 58. The passage we're in this morning. So Jesus defines his very public ministry in Isaiah 58 terms. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's that freedom that we talked about. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus describes what his ministry is about, it's about Isaiah 58 sort of stuff. He defines his public ministry in Isaiah 58 terms. But not only that, he delivers his people into the same freedom that's found in Isaiah 58. How does he do that? Well, there's only one person who can be acceptable before God. If we ask that question of ourselves, is your worship, is our worship acceptable to God? Well, on our own, the answer is no. There is no possible way that we could do this perfectly. We always put other things, even if they're good things, in the first place. That ends up leading us away from the Lord. But Jesus fulfilled all of the law that Isaiah 58 is talking about. He fulfilled all of the prophets. And Jesus is the only one who is acceptable before God. And the great irony of the cross is that when he goes to the cross, the acceptable one is forsaken so that we might become acceptable. He makes us who are unacceptable before God now to be acceptable in God's eyes. It is only in him. So he describes, defines his ministry in Isaiah 58 terms. He delivers us into an Isaiah 58 freedom to be acceptable to God. And then he describes his people as Isaiah 58 people. You'll remember in Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats in a parable. The very last parable in Matthew and the sheep and the goats on either side, and think about how he describes the sheep. And you'll hear Isaiah 58 throughout it. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. These are Isaiah 58 characteristics, and this is how Jesus describes his people. So it's through Jesus and participation in him that we can become the right kind of Isaiah 58 people. The people who God describes as receiving this blessing that starts in verse 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. He will not leave you. He will listen to you because of Jesus. Because he has made you acceptable. These last two verses don't seem like they fit. 
verses 13 and 14, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And it goes on. All of a sudden, he's talking about the Sabbath. Why is that here in this passage? Well, the answer is that just like fasting, just like justice, the Sabbath is another way that God forms his people into the kind of people that are Isaiah 58 people. It's not, this is not primarily a passage about fasting. This is a, primarily a passage about or pointing us to Jesus Christ, who makes us acceptable before God, and then helping to form us into a community that reflects what God's design actually is for us. A community of justice and righteousness. And our worship is acceptable to God, not because we achieve those goals, but because Jesus has achieved those things. And because now we get to walk in him, participate in him. Praise the Lord for his work. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have made us acceptable in your sight. Oh, how gracious and wonderful is your work of redemption to us. Lord, we have no hope of being accepted before you. But through you, Jesus Christ, we have been brought in. We are sons and daughters. And Lord, I pray that you would shape us through this passage and through places in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. I pray that you would shape us as a community that reflects your just and righteous design. Lord, help us never to make your good gifts an end in themselves, but help us to be pointed to you always. Lord, we are weak, and we need you. We need your spirit to strengthen us in this. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.